I hope you've worshipped this morning. It's been good to sing praises to our God. Our God is good. And when we sing, whether it's a hymn, whether it's a spiritual song, and we sing it unto Him, we're blessed because we're doing what we were put here on earth to do. We're, we're praising Him. We're glorifying Him. And what a blessing. What a privilege to be able to sing praises to His name. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We finish out our text this morning. We've been in 1 Timothy for a good while now. We've studied through this book. If you've missed one of the sermons, you can go back online and pick one of them up. We have one more service that will focus on 1 Timothy. We'll bring some of this together and try to share with you some of the big lessons to take away from 1 Timothy through our, our study. 1 Timothy chapter 6, stand with me as we read verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. You may be seated. Join with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the people that you've gifted us with. Paul and Eddie, our praise team, our band, our choir to lead us in worship. It's been good today to sing praises to you. You're worthy of that. I pray that our praises lifted up to you have been pleasing in your ears that even the very thoughts and the very emotions that we've experienced this morning has been pleasing to you as we've offered ourselves to you. I pray that our brothers and sisters in this room have been encouraged, that we could gather together in a safe, free place like this to praise you. We remember our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan today who are fearing for their lives. We pray for their protection, we pray for courage, we pray for help. Would you do something supernatural to wrap your hands around them, to give them a testimony that resounds across the globe for their faithfulness to you? We pray for our president, for our military, that they might do what is right in these times. Give them counsel, give them godly people around them who can speak into their lives we pray for others in our own nation who are struggling at this time due to flooding. We pray for the people in our own mountainous area in North Carolina. We pray for those in Tennessee and those who are struggling. I pray that many people this day will look unto you for your help because of what they're going through. And I pray that same for us. That we'll not take for granted that you're our God, that you're sovereign, that you're at work. And I pray that we will be hungry today to study this text and to understand it and to apply it, to live it out so that we can please you and be the people that you created us to be. We lift up these requests to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love him or hate him, one of the most famous quarterbacks of history is Tom Brady. As a sports fan, I can already see expressions across this congregation of love and hatred. Uh, but at, at any moment in Tom Brady's career, he could have given up when his name was called. 
you may not know this, but in high school, when he went out for football, he was a backup on the JV team. And as the season progressed, instead of quitting, the starting quarterback on his team quit, and he just happened to be at the right place at the right time when his name was called. And he took over and, of course, finished out as the starter for the high school team. When he went to college, though, on the initial depth chart for quarterback, he was seventh on the depth chart. I mean, it would take a lot of injuries to get down to the number seven guy in a particular game. But as that season went on, by his sophomore season, he became the starting quarterback for Michigan. But still, you would think that maybe those were taking note of his promise and his potential. He wasn't drafted until the sixth round of the NFL draft. And even as he went to an NFL team of what many would have considered an average quarterback, he was, he was a bench warmer to this average quarterback, but in his second year, that quarterback was injured and Tom Brady was thrust into the limelight at that moment. And of course, since then, he's won seven Super Bowls and been the most prolific, proficient pastor that uh, any of us have known in our lifetime in the NFL. At any moment, Tom Brady could have quit and given up on his career, what he felt like he was supposed to do. But each time, he continued to practice and work hard. And when his name was called, every time he stepped up and he was ready. Church, I would ask you that question this morning. Will you be ready when your name is called? There's a sense in which all of us as followers of Christ are called on every day to walk with Him and to know Him, to obey Him. Our name is being called every day. And it's such a blessing to know that our Father in Heaven, when we surrender our lives to Christ, He adopts us into His family. He becomes our Father. He forgives our sin. He gives us the freedom from sin to walk with Him and to know Him. And as our Father, He calls our name every day. We're blessed. We're privileged by that. But in another sense, there are those moments in life when we're called to do something unusual. We're called to do something that gets us out of our comfort zone, to do something over and above. And that's the way that I want you to hear this question this morning. Will you be ready when your name is called? Paul, here in this book, in chapter 6 and verse 20, is calling Timothy's name for this time, for his generation, and for this assignment. And I believe that Jesus is coming back soon. And I believe that he's put Lawndale Baptist Church right here in this neighborhood, in this community, in this state, in this place of the world for such a time as this. And so are you ready no excuses. Timothy could have come up with a bunch of excuses of why he was not at a point in time where he was ready to do this. He could have argued that this was something way out of his comfort zone, way different than anything he had ever known. He could have said, Lord, I, I didn't sign up for this. Have you ever felt like that? When the next thing God wanted you to do, you thought, I, I didn't sign up for this. In marriage, have you ever felt like that? But, but Lord, I didn't sign up for this. In parenting, but Lord, I, I didn't sign up for this. And surely as a church family, we're going to hit those moments and we're going to feel like, Lord, I, I didn't sign up for this next step that you're calling us to. 
Well, in this text, we again hear Paul calling Timothy out specifically. Now, it's a larger group. Timothy is leading and shepherding the flock at Ephesus. So whatever message he's getting, he's communicating this. This is for all the people of God. But I want you to see first your identity as a member of God's church. God provides each person in his household, the church of the living God, new life in Christ. God knew Timothy, and Timothy knew God. And Paul, as he called out this young pastor, Timothy, had a particular message in mind for him. And anytime somebody calls your name, doesn't it perk your ears up? When God calls us out and we know that God is working and moving and God has a purpose and a plan and, and many times that purpose and that plan is, is individualized from you because God, individualized to you because God wants to do a greater work in the whole body and in the world around you. God calls us out to be a part of his family. We're, we're created by God, and those who are in the family of God, they've been saved by God. They've been adopted into his family. Our identity is in Christ now. It's not in myself. It's not in what I can do and what I can achieve and what is my preference. Now, I'm, I'm bought with the price. I'm not my own anymore. I'm adopted into a family. I have a father in heaven who leads me. I have a Savior who is my Lord, who directs me and who guides me, who I surrender to. And so when Timothy's name was called, there's a lot involved. You think about his past. All that God had done in Timothy's life to prepare him for this moment. Think about his family. He was raised in a Christian home. Some of you have been raised in a Christian home. God's prepared you for this time in your life because he gave you a Christian mom and a Christian dad who taught you to love God and walk with God and taught you to take risk and to get out of your comfort zone and, and, and be obedient to God no matter what. And Some of you didn't grow up in a Christian home. You're just learning it as you go along now. God's put other people in your life. But you've been prepared for this day, for this moment. There is no other day that's ever been lived like August 2020. There is no other group of people that's ever been gathered like this group of people. There's no other city like this city in Greensboro. Yeah, there's some commonalities throughout history. Some of the same problems are happening in our world today that have always happened because of the same root problem of sin. But yet there's a uniqueness about our day that God's calling us and he's prepared us because of our past. There, there have been people who had invested. Timothy, I have to wonder when he thinks about where God had brought him to and he reflected back and he thought about his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, who taught him about the Bible, taught him about the scriptures so that he was ready to give his life at Christ at that moment. And then the divine appointment that God had with him to meet Paul and Paul began to pour into him and to disciple him and to prepare him for the next step of his life. Some of the circumstances that Timothy went through, I'm sure he felt like giving up at times. What, were my parents really right in what they were teaching me about this Messiah who would come? Was, was Paul really serious when he was telling me, I, I'm telling you to pastor that church in Ephesus and to lead them? I'm sure there were times he would have questioned that, but when we look at our past, we have to realize that God has put people and things in our lives to prepare us 
for this moment that's right before us. And even Timothy's present, as he looked around him and the difficulties, that's part of the reason that Paul wrote this letter was to encourage him because there were moments he didn't know what to do next. Maybe you felt that in your own life. God, I don't even know what to do next. And Paul is writing Timothy. Remember back in chapter 3, he told him this in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Timothy at moments didn't know what to do in the present. And when you're at that moment, I want you to know God doesn't make mistakes. He does bring you to the end of yourself. He does bring you to those spots that you know if, if God doesn't help, nothing good's going to happen. The present can, can be confusing, but God never abandons us. Remember when, when life is easy and there are no challenges and you never have to get out of your comfort zone, I would probably argue you're out of the will of God. Now, some people would say, if your life is going easy and everything's going your way, you're in the will of God. But I, I don't see that for the people of God. When I read through Scripture, I see those who God is working in and through, they're being asked to do stuff they can't do. They're being asked to, to get outside of their box and walk by faith and trust God in the face of possible failure, in the face of possible persecution, God calls his people to do what they can't do. And when they do it, they don't get the credit. God does because people say that had to be God. That couldn't have been him or her. If you're always living in your comfort zone, you might want to recheck and make sure that you're in the will of God. Notice what Paul told the church at Philippi. Philippians 2. It was like a lot of them were struggling to be obedient to God and you can go back and read the context of the whole chapter, but in Philippians 2, verses 13 and 14, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now, I'm sure most of them would have said, Amen, God's sovereign, He's working in my life, He's bringing about His purposes. But then notice what Paul said, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some translations say complaining. Do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing or arguing or quarreling. Why? Because God's going to call you to do things that you don't really want to do. Jonah said no, didn't work out too good for him. But I'm going to tell you, sometimes when you say yes, it doesn't work out too good for you either. I'd love to be able to stand up and say, I'll tell you what, if you'll obey God, your life will be problem free from here on out. But those who've walked with God, you know that's not true. You know that life gets tough. Sometimes when you obey God, it gets worse before it gets better. And you might not even see the better in your lifetime. You might not even see the good that God's going to do, maybe for generations to come, because you were willing to step out and do something that God called you to do. So remember, it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, do all things without grumbling or disputing. What I do know is something about your future. I don't know how your future is going to turn out. I don't know how my future, none of us know the future. Only God knows all things. He's omniscient. He knows everything in the past. He knows everything in the present. He knows everything in the future. 
And when I obey God, I had this natural tendency to think, well, God's going to bless that and bring good, bring good immediately out of that. It's kind of like when you, when you buy a car, you think, man, it ought to work properly and function for years. I mean, it shouldn't, we shouldn't, when you buy a house, it should never have any problems. But we live in a fallen world and everything has problems. Everything. And, and sometimes... I'm wrestling with God's will and, I, and I, I believe God's leading me in a direction and I, I'm weighing it according to his word and God, what are you trying to say in this moment? And sometimes I, I, I step out because I believe God's calling me in faith to trust him and to be obedient. And I'm in the back of my mind thinking, well, God, what if obedience means you want to get glory through my failure? I don't like that. <laughs> but... Isn't that where we should be if we're going to be people of faith? God, even if we fail, we want to fail following Jesus. Even if things don't turn out like we want them to turn out, God, I want want to go down following Jesus. I want to stand before you obedient, not disobedient because it was fear of failure. You see, we can't know the future, but God already knows it. Being omniscient, He's already there. Just like He's always present in the past, He's always present in the present, and He's always present in the future. One day is like 10,000 years in His sight. He he is always present. He is, I am. My circumstances may not be what I want them to be, but you know, God's much more concerned with what's going on in my heart and your heart than he is about your circumstances. You see, we get all caught up in our, man, God, this isn't what I wanted. God, I want something different. God, and we get caught up in our circumstances. And you know what God's doing in each one of us? He's making us more like Christ. He's more concerned about who you're becoming than what you could ever do for him. God can do whatever he wants in a millisecond. He can just speak it. He can just make it happen. But God doesn't work that way because that wouldn't grow us. It wouldn't make us more like Christ. And so he allows us to go through some difficulty and some problems. And so when I hear Paul calling out Timothy, I'm I'm thinking about, here's a man that is known by God. God knows his name. God knows right where he is. God has sovereignly worked to prepare him, to bring him to Ephesus, to pastor that church. And God's at work around him, even though Timothy might feel in over his head. And God's saying, I've got you Timothy I'm working all of this out and through Paul Paul is old Timothy so the passion of a father a mentor a discipler who knows that God's doing something much greater for his glory even than for Timothy's own well-being in that particular part of the world at that particular time I know this message is not a popular message today. You might want to go somewhere where they're going to entertain you and pump you up and make you feel all good about how everything's going to be wonderful and great. And, but let me say this to you. Following Christ, you can follow with me on the, on the screen. Following Christ is not about getting whatever you want. It's not about being whoever you want to be. It's not about doing whatever you want to do. It's about dying. You die to self and you live unto God. That's the life that is truly life. Some people think, well, you know, if I, if I live for myself and I look out for myself and I just do whatever I want to do, that's life. Well, that's misery. That's bondage. You never, there's no purpose. There's no meaning. You never get enough. You can never 
cross off that one more dot. You can never check off that one more box. You never get there. The only place of purpose and meaning is to die to yourself and to live for someone greater. And that someone greater is God himself. That's the life that is truly life. It gets so confusing. It's almost like a a fog around us in the world because it's like... Man, these people seem to be happy. You know, they're, they're doing this. They're doing whatever. They, they're living in sin. And they're, they're teaching stuff that's contrary to the word of God. And, you know, they seem to all be happy. Do you know there was another man who was kind of struggling with all of those thoughts? Some of you have already locked in David, this king of Israel, in Psalm 73. And he said, God, I'm just looking around me. And these people, they just all seem to be doing good. They don't seem to be having any problems. And look, I'm down and I'm being hit. And uh, the world around me seems to be beating me down. And when you read Psalm 73, you think, man, he's got it pretty tough. But it was like all of a sudden the fog rolled away. And the things of the world, the circumstances. And he said, but then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. And I understood their end. You see, this life is not all there is. This life is just preparation for the next. This is a blip on the screen compared to eternity. And God's developing you. God's preparing you to do His work that you could be a co-laborer with Him here on earth. Your life is not about you. You were put here by a Creator to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him, and to glorify Him. It's not about you. It's about Him. Paul wrote this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, that's the life that is truly life. We've seen that statement through 1 Timothy a couple of times. Even... Uh, back in uh, earlier in chapter 6, we see him talking about that in, in verse 19 where he told Timothy, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Some of you are holding on to stuff that one day it's, it's just going to crumble in your hands. One day it's all going to evaporate. It's going to burn up at the judgment. You're holding on to stuff that is not truly life. Your identity as a member of God's church, God has saved you. He's made you his child. He's made you a co-heir, a co-laborer with him. And he's made you a co-heir with him as well to live forever with him. That's what is truly life. Not the temporal, but the eternal. Think with me as you think about the text back in verse 20 now. So we see your identity as a member of God's church. Now think about your responsibility as a member of God's church. Paul told Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. God purposes each person in his household to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Earlier, we read that in chapter 3 where Paul told Timothy, uh, in case I'm delayed, I'm writing this so that you'll know how you should conduct yourself in the household of God. And he describes what the household of God is, this family, this body, this church, the gathered to gathered ones, those who are following Christ together in a local uh, place geographically. He said, you are 
You are a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is. Don't count on our government to be a place of truth. I didn't quite expect that response. <laughs> you know who the pillar and buttress of the church of the truth is? What's the church? God has given us his truth and we're guardians of the truth. He has said that you're not only are the structure that holds it up, you're the, you're the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one who gives us what we have. But we have the truth and we are to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. Tony Evans, really 15 years ago in his book, God's Glorious Church, wrote this. If things continue the way they are, the church may well be the only place left on earth where the next generation can get the real story on the way things are. It's long past thinking that there's somehow in our public arenas that the truth is going to be propagated about God. We, we go to these places and God puts his people. I, I'm thankful for the people he's put in our public schools and our universities and uh, all over the world and the medical fields. And I mean, we could just go on and on. God puts his people all over the world. But as a whole, our world is not headed in the direction of God. The church is what God has called to be the pillar and buttress of the church, of the truth. It's our job. God's given that to us. There are some specific responsibilities that each of us have because we're uniquely made. God's called you to one place and to do your work in the way that he's called you to do it. He's given you certain giftings. Every one of us have been uniquely uh, called to serve God and uh, we've been given unique situations, unique, unique relationships. You see, all these are specific responsibilities God, give, God has given you for right now, right where you are, for the people who are around you. Walk with God and hear those things, know those things, be obedient to God. But God has also given us some shared responsibilities as a church family. I think as we read through 1 Timothy, we see some of those shared responsibilities, but, but here's one of them. This is what God's given us as a responsibility, as a member of his universal church, people who love him all over the world, but also a part of a local church like at Ephesus here in Greensboro. Guard the good deposit. What does it mean to guard? It means to protect and to value, to handle with care. I would go so far as to say there are a lot of people who name the name of Christ who are handling the word of God very carelessly. Whether it's leaders who are teaching outside of the context of the whole counsel of God. Whether it's individuals who day by day say, I'm a Christian but never open up this book. They're handling it pretty carelessly. They're dads who've been given the responsibility to lead their families and to have family devotions and they're not guarding what's been entrusted to them because they're not teaching their families. They're not teaching their kids the word of God. There are moms who are not teaching their kids. There are grandparents who are holding this book pretty carelessly because they're not teaching their grandchildren this word, this book, these truths from God. 
Are you guarding it? Guarding it means not only am I learning it and I'm absorbing it and I'm growing in it, but I'm sharing it with the people that God's put around me. It's easy to be complacent and expect somebody else to go, well, I'll bring my kids and I'll drop them off for Sunday school and they'll learn all they need to know. I'll sign my kids up for a Christian school and they'll get all they need to know. Well, God didn't put the responsibility for the discipleship of your kids on the church or the school. Parents are the primary disciple makers of their children. I would say grandparents are the secondary disciple makers and the church is a partner. When you bring them, we want them to learn the word of God at church. That's that's part of our responsibility too. But I'm saying, are you guarding the good deposit that's been given to you? If you're guarding it, you're, you're learning more, you're investing in it, and you're passing it along. What if everybody handled the good deposit like you're handling it? Would anybody know? Would anybody know the truth once you're gone? There's a shared responsibility. We're to guard, not handle carelessly, not handle compromisingly, not handle complacently. We're to value, we're to handle with care. Now, this good deposit that we've been given, this deposit is the truth. It is the apostles' doctrine. It is what Acts 2.42 talks about. And the church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. You, You see, the early church understood that what Jesus had done was he had taught the apostles what the Old Testament was and how to understand it and how to interpret it. He, he started with the law, and as he spent time with them, especially as, as he worked through those uh, latter parts of his ministry, and even after his resurrection, he explained to them how all of that was about him. And so, so he entrusted them with that truth. And then the, what he actually taught them about himself while he was here and what he demonstrated, he entrusted them with that truth. And what they still hadn't put together, he promised that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. So the apostles' doctrine, they were able to write it down for us in what we have. And so we have the truth. We have the canon of Scripture. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament tells us about his coming. It promises his coming. The New Testament gives us the delivery. He did come. And he did bring salvation. And he's coming again. You see, this is the good deposit that we've been given. Learn it. Love it. Live it. Lead others to it. It concerns me when one generation is not concerned about the other generation. It concerns me when young people are not interested in relating to older people. It concerns me when a young generation somehow thinks that they're okay without the wisdom that older people who've walked with God and spent time studying His Word somehow don't think they need to engage those older, more godly saints who've walked with God for a lifetime. It concerns me with older saints somehow aren't concerned about younger saints knowing that my, my responsibility is to guard this good deposit, and by guarding it, it means to make disciples and to teach and, and invest. So as a church family, 
How could we not want to be intergenerational, interacting with one another? We're, we're guarding this good deposit that we've been given by bringing the generations together to learn together, to love together, and to have leadership and learning from one another. John MacArthur wrote this. I think it's a pretty good statement. The most important yardstick by which a church can be measured is not how large it is, how good its fellowship is, or how interesting the pastor is. It is not how good the music is, how well the grounds are kept up, and how respected it is in the community. All of those are important things. I think, I, I think none of us would say, man, we don't want that, any of that. I, I think we'd all say that's, that's good stuff, but the most important measure of any church is how it handles the Word of God. I think that's a pretty good statement. See, guard this good deposit. It's been entrusted to you. It's his truth for all time, for all people, for each generation. And that's going to be, you know, God's, I don't, I don't know where we get off on some of the things that are so much smaller in importance. Because I, I think somehow we've got to imagine when we stand before God, what are we going to be held accountable for? I mean, it makes sense. God's going to hold us accountable for guarding this good trust. But you know what he's not going to hold us accountable for? He's not going to say, man, I tell you what. Your pastor was the most entertaining pastor. I mean, sometimes he even made me laugh. I don't think God's going to judge Lawndale. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that he's not going to judge the church for entertainment purposes. But he's not, I don't think he's going to say, you know what, you had the best musicians. I, I mean, you, you think God's going to really say, well done, Lawndale, because we had the best musicians, we had the best vocals, we had the best choir. I mean, our congregational singing, we could outsing any church in America. I just somehow don't think that that's nearly as important to God. As when we come and we say, God, you know all things. You have the truth. Teach us the truth. God, we, we didn't come to be entertained. We didn't come, to, we didn't come to, to get the best that this world has to offer. We came to get more of you. Paul emphasized it in his second letter to Timothy. Notice what he said to him in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Church, you have an identity. It's in Christ as a member of his church. You have a responsibility as a member of his church. And let me give you this third thing in this text. Your security as a member of God's church. Notice again, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Your security is not in who you are and what you do. Your security is in who God is and what he does. God saves us. He brings us into His family. He gives us truth, direction from His Word. And that's the mystery of godliness, the truth that has once and for all been delivered to us. When you, again, think back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul 
told Timothy what the mystery of godliness is. Made it very clear. How can you be right with God? How can you have a relationship with God? How can you be right with Him for eternity? And remember, he said, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. So it's through His incarnation, living a holy, sinless life, dying the death that we deserve, and being raised from the dead. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The bookends of his life on earth. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. This testimony from heaven and from earth of people who saw him. Angels who saw him. People who saw him raised from the dead. And then believed on in the world, taken up in glory. His ministry on earth of salvation, bringing salvation. He came to seek and to save those who are lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. And then his ministry from heaven for those who are in his family, how he intercedes for us, even from the right hand of the Father. That's the mystery of godliness. It's not what we do, it's what he's done for us. He restores, he transforms, he brings light in the darkness, he transforms first citizenship from earth and the place we call hell to the place of heaven in an eternity with him. So what should we avoid in this? Well, we avoid irreverent babble, conversations that distract from the gospel, conversations that, yes, could be sinful and dishonor God, maybe the things of the world, maybe some of the debates and the controversies of the world, we get so caught up with them that it distracts from this gospel message that we've been entrusted with that we're supposed to be given to other people. We talk more about the irreverent Bible than we do about the truth of God. Avoid that. Avoid contradictions. Conversations that distort the gospel. I thought it was interesting the way Paul referred to that. Contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Isn't it interesting? Even in the ESV, it puts knowledge in the quotes. Because knowledge in the world, from a worldly perspective, is always changing. What the world thinks is right seems to change from day to day. I mean, we've, we've just seen that in what we've been through over this last year. Knowledge, what science, we're putting quotes around all of this changes consistently in our world. That's the constant, isn't it? That the world's ideas are constantly changing. Well, what doesn't change? God and the Word of God never changes. He's he's the I Am. He never changes. He is the living God, and His Word is living and active. It never changes. So why do I get caught up in all the controversies of the world But now, those things that contradict the Word of God, I should be ready to give an answer to those. I'm I'm not going to go with those contradictions. The world is changing. It seems like it always comes to my mind the kinds of things that consistently change. Do you remember when the... Well, I don't think any of you would remember this, so I I don't want to insult you. Way back, before any of you were ever born... One of the primary ways for physicians to help people was bloodletting, right? I mean, if you're going to properly administer help to this person, just cut them open and let them bleed for a while. Now, they were doing the best they could in the day with all the information they, they have. 
I am so thankful our medical fields progressed from that. We have doctors in our congregation. I'm grateful for you, you men and women who serve our world so well. But what I'm trying to say is, is that even medical practices change over time. The things that, that everybody around would have said, hey, this is, this is knowledge. And even some of the things that come out today, like evolution, it's taught as knowledge. When we know the world was... Spoken into existence by God, by the clear teaching of the Word of God. We could go on with, with certain things, how families defined and how people raise children. It's all right here in the Word of God. We've, we've got the instructions and we know the truth that will never change. It's here for us. So we avoid irreverent Bible contradictions. Why do we avoid it? Because we don't want to waste our days here on earth. Instead of walking with God, enjoying Him and glorify Him, glorifying Him, many settle for less, much less. They settle for the kinds of stuff that's just going to turn to dust in their hands, the stuff that's just going to burn up because those things won't last. It's God, the Word of God, and the souls of people. We don't want to swerve. Some because they get caught up in those things, they they swerve from the faith. That may mean some. Some stray a little, and if they're really a part of the family of God, God will bring them back. And even those who haven't swerved, reach out and try to give them a hand back in and, and, and try to restore them. But some who maybe have been a part of the flock and they swerve and they keep going, I'd say they really never were a part of the family of God. And when you swerve, there's the danger of the ditch. You don't want to get stuck in the ditch. I believe there's some genuine followers of Christ who've gotten stuck in the ditch and it's not easy to get out when you get caught up in these things. So where do we, where do we bank? Where do we, where do we trust? Where's our good deposit? It's, it's right here in the Word of God. So church, let's come back to our question. Will you be ready when your name is called? I think it would be an insult to God not to be ready when your name is called. I think about that football player that hasn't practiced, hasn't prepared, and is thrown in at game time. It's kind of an insult to the rest of the team and the coach to not be ready when his name was called. But when you're constantly preparing, you're walking with God, and you're being obedient, and your name is called, and you're ready to go in, you're just a compliment to the whole team. And so church... What if your name was called in a different way today? What if your time is up? What if the role up yonder is called and your time is up? Are you ready? Or will it be an insult to God because you've not done anything to prepare? One step worse what if you're not in the family of God? What if you never have given your life to Christ? What if, what if you've not placed your faith in His death and resurrection and haven't confessed Him as Lord? And your name is called. You see, God knows your name. He created you. He put you here on earth. He's done everything in your life to prepare you for this moment so that right now in this place, by His grace and not what you deserve, but by His grace, He's saying, I'm giving you... A chance today to be in my family. 
God by his spirit has done everything in your life to prepare you for this day, for his na- your name to be called and for you to say, yes, Lord. Do you know that if you died tonight, you'd spend eternity in heaven? All of our names are going to be called one day. It's appointed unto men once to die. And then the judgment. Death is certain for all of us. Are you ready for your name to be called? Some of you may have years to go before Jesus comes back or before your life on earth is over. But do you really want to take that chance of not being ready if your name is called? So Rodney, I I want to be ready. Tell Tell me how to be ready. Almost like the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Are you at that point today? What must I do to be saved? Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Jesus came, lived the life we couldn't live, perfection, died the death that we deserved. He was our substitute, paid the price, shed his blood, gave of himself to die the death we deserved, and he rose from the dead to show he has power over sin and death and hell, and those who place their faith in him become members of his family, become his children. You might have been created by God. Well, you were created by God. But you're not a child of God unless you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? He knows your name. And as he transferred your name into the Lamb's Book of Life, when you stand before him and the books are opened, one of those books is going to be the Book of Life. Is your name there? Are you in his family? Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Have you been adopted into his family? If you have, your life will be different. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God changes us. There's never been a change in your life. I would examine my salvation whether or not I'm really in the faith. Today I'm, I'm coming a little bit more direct to you, family. Because I want to make sure all of you are in the family. I, I want you to have that opportunity out of the grace of God. I, I know you can't do it yourself. I, I know we as a church can't move forward by ourselves. But the most important thing is whether or not you're in the family of God. Why, why do you think Paul closed the letter out, grace be with you? He knew Timothy needed the grace of God to keep moving forward, to guard that good deposit, to carry out these instructions of being the church. And unless we're in the family of God, we'll never live up to what God's called us to do. We, we can't. But with God's help, as his children, he will help us to make progress to become the church that he designed for us to be. So it starts with salvation. You're not here by accident today if you don't know Christ. You're not here by accident if, if, if you've been in church many, many times. 
But today you come to terms with, am I saved? Am I in the family of God? Am I acting like a child of God? If even right where you are in your seat right now, you can be saved. Did you know that? You don't, you don't have to walk an aisle. You don't, you don't have to jump through hoops. Our God is big enough to save you right where you are. Whether you're online and you're watching this, whether you're in one of the seats in this sanctuary right now, God can save you. It's a matter of you coming to Him and calling out to Him, save me. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I place my faith in what Jesus did for me in the cross and the resurrection, and I surrender my life to become a follower of Christ for the rest of my life. It's calling out to Him. You do that right now. Would you? If you don't know Christ, would you do that right now? If, if we can talk to you further about this, I normally go to Guest Central after one of the services for guests to, to meet uh, some of the staff and the wives. But if you ask Christ to come into your life, nothing would honor me more, bless me more, than you coming and telling me or even asking about that or calling me this week or emailing me or any of our staff because your salvation is important to God and it's important to us. The altar is always open at the close of our service. We're going to sing and maybe if you've, if you've prayed or if you've been thinking about it and you want to come and, and, and make it uh, a little bit more sure as you nail it down and come to the altar, you can do that. If, if maybe even as a church family, as we're considering, God, what do you want us to do as we move forward? And you want to pray and commit yourself, whatever God may be speaking to you about today, talk to Him about it. Commit to Him. And pray with me now. Father, I thank You for these words that You inspired to be written down. May we grow deeper in our understanding of all of your word, the whole counsel that you inspired from Genesis to Revelation. And particularly right here in 1 Timothy, you told Timothy to guard the good deposit. And I pray that we as a church family would do nothing less than that. Lord, help us to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to us, this truth of your word. And I pray for those this morning who are wrestling with their salvation and whether or not to fully surrender their lives, I pray that right now that they would sense your presence and your help and that they would surrender all. I pray for us as a church family that we would hear even the call of Isaiah, who will I send? And that every one of us in this room will raise our hand and say, here am I, send me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand as we continue to worship.